Hi everyone and welcome back to Young to Live By. In today's video we've got a narration from part of the upcoming personal myth guide all about creativity. It begins with talking about the process of creativity and how it's linked to depth psychology and to the unconscious and in particular the personal myth and how creativity is not something that you discover or create through skill but it's a process that comes through you through connection to the personal myth. So the guide contains a complete exegesis on this process. And then what follows is an overview of the story of Lilith, The Last Temptation of Adam, a novel and soon-to-be film written by Tom Stevens. In other words, our very own Steve Richards. It's an archetypal drama in that very, very classical Jungian sense of the anima and the animus, as well as other, we'll say, archetypal characters and materials. And as such, we think it's a great case study for you guys to show how creativity, in particular from the psyche of Steve, is linked to connection to the personal myth. Indeed, as lived experience, both in that broad collective sense, but ultimately it will come from personal experience. Steve, Pauline and I want to thank each and every one of you who's pre-ordered the personal myth guide so far. Your support has honestly been ridiculously staggering. And we've delayed it a couple times because from its original conception, it's since massively expanded. It's going to be well over 400 A4 pages, absolutely packed, both with information and knowledge from Stephen Pauline's 40 plus year each clinical career, but also full of diagrams as well to help illustrate the concepts that are described within. So I must say, the day that this video is going out, which is a Friday, the Friday 26th of February 2021, you guys have about 48 hours or so from this video dropping to pick up the Personal Myth Guide before it's launched. And we are continuing right up until launch day this coming Sunday with the 25% discount coupon. So if you want to knock a solid 10 quid off of the overall price, then I'd highly recommend that you go to the Gumroad page, pick it up and use code, and make sure you use the code Xmas myth x-m-a-s-m-y-t-h at checkout to receive your 25% off this discount code is a way of saying thank you to all of you at this early stage of young to live by so without any further ado i'd like to introduce you to creativity and the personal myth creativity is relating both to the inner and outer worlds as such it's an essential part of the personal myth and the individuation process it can take many forms, and anyone can be creative. Essentially, it's engagement with life, and any product of that engagement that involves positive change, novelty, self-expression, and transcendence. Uncovering your personal myth is such a creative process, as indeed is your realization of your personal equation and the individuation process that follows. Here, we're sharing creative work of a very Jungian kind. The screenplays, novels, and fine art produced by Stephen T. Richards, aka Tom Stevens, and Pauline Richards are part of their promise to Franz Jung, Carl Jung's only son, to bring his father's work within the reach of ordinary people, not the wealthy elite who have traditionally benefited from Jungian analysis, nor indeed the creative industry establishment. There's a direct link between Steve and Pauline's clinical and creative work that embodies the working through of their own personal myth. Their journey has distilled the biopsychosocial form of lifespan development through the creative process, 
in tandem with the application of Jungian psychodynamics in their own lives and within the lives of thousands of other people who as patients, creatives and fellow labourers in the vineyard of the human soul have shared their endeavour. This section of the Personal Myth Guide literally illustrates how self-taught creatives can access Jung's quote-unquote collective unconscious, bringing the mythic narrative process to life in a way that academic psychology on its own, either in depth or otherwise, simply cannot. Depth psychology should be creative. Individuation must be. The Autodidact on Being Self-Taught Creativity cannot be taught, or even learned. It has to be uncovered. Many of us believe that it's a matter of technical skill, and that without this there can be no medium for expression, and therefore no product and no creativity as such. Highly skilled artisans certainly produce, but the extent to which they are creative depends upon the context of their production. In depth psychology, the context of production is the goal of an individuated personality. To achieve this, in a traditional Jungian sense, it is essential to connect with the psyche, specifically the unconscious, which Jung held to be the true wellspring of creativity in all of its forms. To be self-taught is an active process of uncovering. It requires motivation, engagement and reflexivity. All psychodynamic endeavour is ultimately a self-directed creative act involving a most unusual relationship, one of the conscious personality with the unconscious. In their creative industry work, Steve and Pauline Richards are both autodidacts. Pauline as a fine artist and Steve as a screenwriter and novelist. Both work as creators with movie industry professionals at the highest levels in Hollywood, including A-list Oscar-winning and nominated acting and directing talent who have worked on some of the biggest international movies of the last 50 years. The key to how Steve and Pauline were able to break through into the movie industry is the nature and quality of their creative material, their product. All of it is Jungian, but without cliched archetypes or formulaic storylines. The essence of their work is affect or emotion, and how that penetrates deeply into the instincts and their roots in the genome itself. A true Jungian archetype is a whole situation, a narrative or story arc, and not an individual role, such as a king, warrior, magician, etc., Outside of their defining context, which is their narrative throughline, such popular surface structure constructs are non-playable characters, or NPCs. Archetypal stories tell themselves. The inherent emotion in the universal human condition engages instinct, releasing the genomic narrative directly from the unconscious and thus into ego-consciousness as a reciprocal apperception. Conscious and unconscious, in reflexive communion with one another on their own terms. The confirmation for this is affect, the overwhelming emotion that occurs within consciousness when the genome communicates its intentionality directly. The now manifest deep structure archetypal pattern is a representation of genomic intent, offering the potential resolution of all impediments to optimal lifespan development. Jung correctly intuited this as the deep structure primal source for what he called big dreams. Dreams are like movies. Both have a narrative structure, 
actors, through lines, scenes, transitions, ambient lighting and creative design. Both have a producer, a director and a screenwriter. Our easy trance-like absorption into movies is an index of their similarity to dreams. Our psyche knows. Absorption into the creative process in any medium is a trance state, and trance states as altered states of consciousness facilitate communion with the psyche. The personal myth is the narrative structure of our life, and our engagement with it is a true self-analysis. Creative writing, as in novels or screenwriting, is a dreamlike experience. It facilitates the generation of an affect bridge so that the psyche resonates with your intentionality to commune with it. By generating your own creative writing, you will offer the collective unconscious a medium of expression consciously through you that is contained by the narrative, in the same way that a mandala contains expressed unconscious forces within its geometric bounds. The mythic narrative structure of creative writing is, however, far more natural and effective than an introverted and contemplative projection into a limited geometric space. Narratives reflect life as it is lived. They express the intentionality of the genome and its instinctive drive to complete itself, which is individuation. This is why dreams, myths and movies have the same essential structure. Lilith, The Last Temptation of Adam, is a psychodrama of the anima and animus and follows the path identified by Jung in Gnosticism, Kabbalism, Hermeticism, Alchemy and, of course, Depth Psychology. What follows is an outline of the Lilith story in relation to the personal myths of the protagonists and the antagonists, from innocence to individuation, through the true revelation and meaning of the hero myth. Heroes and Heroines, the Jungian mythos of Lilith, the last temptation of Adam. Depth psychology, or the psychology of the unconscious, is a modern discipline whose roots recede far back into history. Long before rational science had reduced the human condition to mere behaviour modification or cognitive schemas, the healing powers of narrative and of myth were the natural means of treating the suffering soul. Just like the body, the psyche has evolved and within it, echoes of our remote ancestral past still play out through the narrative of myth. Human self-awareness, our much-prized bright light of consciousness, has indeed been hard won, but at the cost of a separation between not only ourselves and others, but also an inner separation between that narrow focus light of ego and the unknowable depths of the soul. To work in depth psychology is to be a labourer in the vineyard of the soul, there, paranormal phenomena arise quite spontaneously. Things happen that can only be given name to by religion and by myth, as the language of science loses all of its explanatory power. It is at this level that the eternal truths of human nature are to be encountered, and it is here, if we but only look, that we find her. Lilith as Platonic Form in the movie, as in the original novel, Lilith is portrayed as a natural beauty, with a timeless look that artists down the ages have utilised for the image of a goddess. On the left is Freya Lund, and to the right is Botticelli's Venus, created in 1486. The film moves away from recent portrayals of Lilith as a goth or vampire. The characterization is as close as possible to the platonic form, reflecting the universal archetype that is, Lilith. In the beginning, 
the creation myth. The story of Lilith, The Last Temptation of Adam, is an original work of mythic fiction, starting with the creation of the material world. The Garden of Eden, Paradise, and the first man, Adam. The unfolding drama is played out between the two eternal opposites in the human psyche, the masculine and the feminine, with the patriarchal demiurge, or Rex Mundi and Lord Creator, fashioning the physical world and placing at its heart paradise in the form of the Garden of Eden, and within that, the first man, Adam, made from the earth itself in the Creator's own image. The beauty of the created world beguiles an immortal goddess who exists in the Pleroma, the highest realms of the eternal uncreated void. She is Lilith, and as she enters creation, not only does she form a deity counterpoint to the Demiurge as feminine to masculine, thereby completing the original divine pair with him, but by becoming flesh as the first woman, she mirrors that divine dyad with Adam, the first man. Adam is unaware of his own divine nature, his soul as being a spark of the highest god that rules over the uppermost realm of the Pleroma, and which has become entrapped in matter by the Demiurge. Lilith, however, is more than aware of her status, not as a divine spark, but as a goddess of the Pleroma in her own right. Yet, she believes that she has instantiated herself into the material world by an act of her own will, whereas in reality, she has been captured as surely as Adam's soul has, albeit that it was the beauty of creation in material form that had caught her as a moth to a flame. Adam's awareness of himself, his consciousness, is limited, which is the state that the Lord Creator, the Demiurge, wishes him to remain within. But he does react to his opposite, the first woman, Lilith, who he mistakenly believes is like him, created by the Lord. The spark of the divine within him, now polarised as a man, seeks completion by union with its opposite, a woman. The Lord had promised Adam a woman to be his companion, but Lilith had arrived before her. The mutual attraction between them as spirit entrapped in flesh was overpowering for Adam. Lilith feels this too, but she will not submit to Adam's primitive instincts for masculine dominance, although she does also feel his devotion, which is the first love to arise in a human being. Lilith recognises this in his beating heart. It is his signature, the rhythm of his soul, and this will echo and resonate with her as her heart song down the coming ages. Lilith demands that Adam submit to her will. She is a goddess and only exists in flesh as an act of her own will, which she still believes. Adam is tempted, but he feels fear as he does not appreciate Lilith's divine status any more than he realises his own. In his fear, he chooses to run back to the heart of the garden to call upon his father creator and there begs him to create the promised submissive and now second woman for him. In so doing, he chooses another aspect of the feminine over goddess Lilith. In effect, another woman over her. This choice, the resolution of his first temptation, is a preference for a woman with a lower level of consciousness and development than his own. In making this choice, he gives up on the potential he would have had for increasing his self-awareness and his development of his true nature by union with Lilith. This seems to satisfy the Lord Creator, the Demiurge, who of course does not want humanity to be conscious of itself, hence the prescription concerning the forbidden fruit from the Tree of Knowledge. Lilith as flesh, or at least as the material part of her total being, which is as a goddess's spirit within flesh, 
is vulnerable to the Demiurge's power over this, his own created material realm. And so she is banished beyond Eden and into the wasteland. But even he cannot destroy her, and so she makes her home there and issues her curse against Adam's choice of Eve over her, and against all who descend thus from Eve's womb, the whole of forthcoming humanity. They she will destroy with pestilence, until none remain except one, one single man, who must carry Adam's spark, the heartbeat and rhythm of his soul, recognised by her as her heart song. And so he will be chosen as her new Adam, with whom she will repopulate the world from her own new Garden of Eden. In spite, Lilith returns by guile into Eden and shapeshifts into a half-woman, half-serpent, and successfully tempts Eve to take the forbidden fruit from the Tree of Knowledge. She also places herself deeply within Eve's psyche as an imago of a living image of a beguiling feminine eroticism, love and sapphic lust for womankind, so as to torment the male descendants of Adam with frustration. Meanwhile, she ensures that he too has the imago of Lilith placed deeply within him, as image and far collective memory of a lost first love, but also as the ultimate in temptation of lust, and irresistible desire. With these seeds so planted, Lilith is able to feast upon human libido as incubus and succubus, and thereby maintain her physical form, which is necessary after the demiurge casts her out into the wasteland. Thus, we have two immortal gods, the demiurge and Lilith as male and female deities, and two divine sparks entrapped within flesh as male and female human souls. The first man, Adam, and the second woman, Eve. The archetypal drama is thus staged. Animus, the masculine spirit. Animus is the Latin term for spirit, and in the psychology of Carl Gustav Jung, the term represents the imago of the masculine as it's experienced by women, both personally in an individual woman's own life, and also collectively, through the universal experience women have, and always have had, down the ages of men. At the core of this imago is what Jung calls an archetype, an inherited original imprint or form that lies latent in a woman's psyche and helps prepare her for experience of her opposite, that is, of men. The animus is experienced regularly in relationships, dreams and fantasies, and also through storytelling in all of its forms, including literature, music, art, television and the cinema. The oldest representations of the animus come from religion and myth, and as a work of mythic fiction, Lilith, The Last Temptation of Adam, is therefore a kind of psychodrama of the animus. The first encounter in the novel is between Lilith in her transcendent goddess form and a material paradise created by a little-known masculine deity, the Demiurge, who has placed a first man made in his own image within that garden paradise, Eden. Lilith, despite her power and independence, is first beguiled and then entrapped by the beauty of creation, including that of the rather fawning but still attractive primordial man, Adam. Lilith's own wish to be loved and appreciated above all others is her first revealed weakness, but her standoffish treatment of this simple first man, Adam, leads to his rejection of her in favour of another, and this time created woman, Eve. On screen is a picture of Von Hess as the alchemist, a representation of the animus. 
Jealousy, including a reproductive jealousy, now drives Lilith's spite and she curses Eve and all who will descend from her. Lilith will become a death demon, the bringer of pestilence, a child killer and a libido vampire. And all of this in service to her intense feelings of being scorned. And yet, she is not liberated by her plans for retribution. Rather, they entrap her still further by her emotional attachment to the imago of a new Adam with whom she will repopulate the Earth after her fatal global pandemic pestilence has cleansed it of all others. The next significant masculine figure we meet is the Bavarian Maximilian von Hesse, formerly Guy de Montpellier. Von Hess is well-reliefed as the archetypal, tall, dark, handsome man. Mysterious, powerful, highly dangerous, essentially unknowable. He is effortlessly seductive, but steely cold in his soul. A man whom any woman may want or fantasize about as her protector, but never wish as her enemy. Such an archetype is popular in myth and legend, with aspects of him to be found in such diverse characters as Heathcliff in Wuthering Heights, Sir Mordred and all dark knights in medieval romance, as well as in contemporary gothic vampire and werewolf stories. For a woman to have such a man utterly devoted to her and to be her protector, servant and lover has been a common fantasy for millennia. But although Von Hess is a somewhat one-sided figure, implacable and relentless, his devotion to Lilith may in the end be conditional, which makes him potentially treacherous, even to her. On screen is a picture of Von Hess in the 17th century, as a representation of the Animus, played by Matt Milburn. These pictures show Von Hess in the 21st century, with two of his henchmen. This is the attraction, the dangerous attraction of such men, vast intelligence and experience, a warrior and a scientist, devastatingly handsome, but also an unconscionable killer. Does he still carry within his dark heart that spark of light from the first Adam? The next significant figure is, of course, Adam Teal, the fawning youth man of 17th century old Liverpool town, whose love for Lilith is immediate and unconditional. At first, she merely teases him, waiting for her powers to reach their climax, but her own willfulness betrays her to the townsfolk as a witch, and she is condemned to be cast in chains into a liver-brown tidal pool, there to drown. In that final moment, she sees deeply into young Adam Teal's heart, and there finds the spark that had evaded her all along. Recognising him for who he really is, she prophesies that they will be together again in future lifetimes when he will remember his love for her with his every single heartbeat. Adam Teal represents the common experience for many young women and girls of devoted but unwanted love from a youth whom they aren't at first interested in, but despite his perhaps lack of good looks, in the end, he proves not only to be genuine in his love, but has that certain something deeper within him that resonates with her soul, and so finally removes all of her doubts. With Lilith's reanimation in the early 21st century, we meet a contemporary Adam Teal in the form of Adam Mitchell. This third Adam is much better looking than Adam Teal was, slightly older and certainly better educated, He's a PhD student, but like his earlier namesake, he's immediately smitten with Lilith. On screen is a picture of a 21st century Von Hess protecting a young, resurrected Lilith. 
Every time she is resurrected, she must come back as a little girl. Scatty, likeable, accident-prone, and the kind of young man many women spontaneously want to mother, his infatuation with Lilith knows no bounds. For her part, however, she recognises him immediately as the reincarnation of the earlier Adam Teal, and the both of them as one continuous personality right back to that first Adam in Eden, for the signature rhythm of their beating heart is the same. They are, therefore, rather like a holographic image, merely the separate facets of the same soul. The Adam of Eden is Adam Teal, and now Adam Mitchell. And yet, she cannot make her final choice too quickly, for there are other candidates. Principal amongst whom is Von Hess, whose centuries-long life has been utterly devoted to becoming her consort and father of the coming new race of humankind. Whom will she choose? The boy band Adam Mitchell or the mature, tall, darkly handsome and dangerous Von Hess? It's a common enough scenario. How does any woman choose with whom to start a family with? But of course, for Lilith, the stakes are incalculably higher. Then there is yet another choice, Sean O'Reilly, a little younger than Adam Mitchell and the grandson of the only man alive who could conceivably stop her. To choose him would amuse Lilith as she is vulnerable to irony. Sean, in looks, is more of a ruggedly handsome type, but his nature is similar to Adam Mitchell's. A likeable dreamer, gaff prone and, just as adoring and unconditionally devoted. As Lilith prepares for what she believes will be her final retribution, her nemesis against the children of Eve, she encounters a number of other men, all of them representing different aspects of the Animus archetype. On screen is a picture of Freya Lund as Lilith and Matt Milburn as Von Hess as the Syzygy, the Anima and the Animus. Sean's grandfather, Kevin O'Reilly Sr., is the one human male that she fears. Patriarch of his family, he stands at the end of a long line of keepers of an ancient secret of the land. In outward appearance, he is an older but still youthful and very well-groomed wise man. In looks, much like a matured Pierce Brosnan. Had Lilith returned when O'Reilly was young, then he would without doubt have been a serious contender to be chosen as her consort, due both to his good looks, but also that spark of spirit that he carries within him. As an animus figure, he represents an older father figure, security, honesty, life experience, emotionally protective and wise. Yet in the novel, when Claire Latimer really needs him, he falters as Lilith's penetrating spirit uncovers every last shadowed recess of his soul and brings him into conflict with his final and as yet unresolved fears. Dr. John Sutton, Claire Latimer's deputy and best friend, is a mature, good-looking action man type. Practical, no-nonsense, loyal and always first into the fray when needed. The women around him rely on him to be the man's man when needed and the sounding board for the collective man beyond their network of relationships. He acts as a middle-aged understudy to the older O'Reilly. Lilith toys with him easily as John's innate honesty cannot hide anything from her penetrating gaze. The two most important women in the story are of course Lilith herself, but it also transpires Claire Latimer. Claire is in early middle age, but in looks can easily pass for 10 years younger. Attractive and experienced in life and in relationships, she is happily married with two teenage children. But the story soon brings her to question herself in the most fundamental of ways. 
her identity as a woman, and her relationship to the men around her. On screen is a picture of a 21st century Von Hess with his henchman Hans Meyer. For Claire, the animus archetype operates through a network of secure and enduring roles and relationships. Her loving husband, Kevin O'Reilly Jr., her colleague and best friend, Dr. John Sutton, her own father figure, Kevin O'Reilly Sr., her teenage son, Sean, and her at first platonic and protective relationship to the affable, gaff-prone, but flirtatious Adam Mitchell. However, the rapid pace of events soon overturns Claire's hard-won world, as she discovers first an unbidden but deeply erotic and emotional attachment to Adam Mitchell, which he reciprocates. And then, having uncovered just who and what Lilith is, she learns that the primordial goddess and death demon is penetrating her own family having attacked her husband, Kevin Jr., in her astral form as a succubus, and then, in guise of the beautiful teenage girl, Lillian Hopgood, she enthralls her son, Sean. The animus drama now spirals out of control for Claire as she discovers through a seance and a past-life regression hypnosis that she is the reincarnation of Adam Mitchell's wife, Sarah Tennyson, from the 17th century Liverpool, when he was Adam Teal, and that she is the biological descendant of the Witchfinder, Nathaniel Latimer, who sacrificed Lilith to his version of Christianity by throwing her in shackles into the old Liverpool pool, cursed as a witch. Claire's emotions run riot with her as she is torn between her duty of care to Adam and her almost irresistible feelings of love and attraction to him. Her marriage is put under enormous strain and her son Sean is drawn ever deeper into Lilith's trap with him being a potential consort for the demon goddess as her new Adam. Desperate and falling to pieces, both physically and emotionally, she finds that O'Reilly Sr. is overwhelmed by his own unresolved fears, and that her ever-dependable colleague, Dr. John Sutton, is all but powerless to help her. Her love and her identity are challenged, literally to the very brink of the abyss, and it is only at the very last moment that the animus, in his transcendent form of loving self-sacrifice, finally comes to her aid. On screen is some concept art for Lilith, The Last Temptation of Adam, and from left to right shows Von Hess, Lilith, and one of Von Hess's henchmen. The third significant woman in the second part of the book is the marmishly glamorous Dr. Claudia Moore. Claudia, the head of department and chief field archaeologist at Liverpool Museum, is married and has one child by her husband, an archaeologist from Liverpool John Moore's University. Despite her brusque persona, she is as a repressed cauldron of erotic fantasy and desire, and struggles to control her attraction to Adam Mitchell, her PhD student at the museum. This she tries in vain to cover up, firstly by bullying, and then, alternatively, by mothering him. But her repressions and unresolved neuroses make her very vulnerable to suggestion and to hypnotic control, and this is exploited fully by the menacing, mesmerising and darkly handsome Von Hess. The final scene of the story is pivotal and involves a defining confrontation between her and the dark pole of the Animus in the form of the Bavarian. The Animus then exists both as a positive and a negative polarity within a woman's psyche. He can be her father, teacher, guide, soulmate and redeemer, but in his negative form, her inner critic, abuser, shadowy seducer, her accuser, even her ultimate destroyer. 
both projected out into the world and onto real men she may meet, and also introjected by a process of assimilation from the outer world into her very heart. A woman's relationship to her personal masculine spirit is the journey work of a lifetime. On screen is some concept art from Lilith, The Last Temptation of Adam, showing Von Hess and Lilith. Take note of Von Hess's right hand and where it is placed, and in his left hand, the gun that he is carrying. Anima, the feminine spirit. Anima is the Latin term for soul, and in the psychology of Carl Gustav Jung, it represents the imago of the feminine, as it's experienced by men both personally in an individual man's own life, and also collectively through the universal experience men have, and always have had, down the ages of women. It is therefore the counterpoint to the animus in woman. As with the animus, the core of this imago is what Jung calls an archetype, an inherited original imprint or form that lies latent in a man's psyche and helps prepare him for experience of his opposite, that is, of women. As Jung put it, a man's psyche is attuned to expect, or to anticipate, woman. The anima is experienced regularly in relationships, dreams and fantasies, and also through storytelling in all of its forms, including literature, music, art, television, and the cinema. The oldest representations of the anima come from religion and myth, and as a work of mythic fiction, Lilith, The Last Temptation of Adam, is therefore a kind of psychodrama of the anima. The central anima imago in the novel is, of course, Lilith herself. She is imprinted into Adam's psyche the moment he sets eyes on her, and as such she becomes the prototype or archetype for the feminine principle in nature as she will be experienced subsequently by all men in descent from the creation in Eden. Key elements of her psychic image are a goddess perfection in beauty, endlessly long hair and unrequited or lost first love, the original woman and prospective mother of the world, a soul yearning attachment to a lover and redeemer, yes, but also irresistible seduction, sexual predation, and vampirism, betrayal, witchcraft, child-killing, fatal scorn, retribution, and pandemic death. Thus does she sum up in one imago the entire spectrum of the feminine, both positive and negative. Therein lies her power. As a goddess, she has the characteristics of the perfect form, as described by the Greek philosopher Plato. This form is the highest and therefore transcendent representation of the feminine. But, under ordinary conditions, the human mind is incapable of directly experiencing this. It is simply too complete, so it sees what it can cope with. Hence, Lilith's outer appearance is mutable. It can and does change, according to who witnesses it, even though she has a core image, based in the novel on the host body she occupies. But the combination of her essential spirit and the beauty of her host body acts to draw out the projection of her original image. That which was first placed by her in Adam's psyche, in the Garden of Eden. This image is irresistible, and carries with it the echo of each and every encounter every generation of humankind has ever had with Lilith down the ages. Once smitten by this projected imago, then there is no hope for her victim. Unless and until, by her own dispensation, Lilith allows the image to fade, or to fall away. Therefore, Lilith in this story represents the summation of the anima archetype, with that great paradox of polarity that all true archetypes carry. Is she good, or is she evil?
This is a central thread in the moral weave of the tale. Does her desire to wipe the slate clean of humankind and start again constitute an act of extreme and ultimate evil? Or just an opportunity to set right all that has gone wrong with the world and with the human species since the creation? Isn't she just that other Eve, the mother goddess who should have given birth to the world? Lilith's final temptation, the last temptation of Adam, is the ultimate confrontation between a young man and the seduction of the anima. Can he refuse her? Can he step away from the temptation of becoming the immortal consort of a beautiful goddess and the father of a whole new world? On screen is a picture of Freya Lund as Lilith. Note the curious expression on her face, one of the key characteristics of Lilith in the novel. The lesson of myth is that having to choose between goddesses, i.e. between different aspects of the archetypal feminine, is nearly always fatal for a man. The judgment of Paris in Homer's Iliad is just such an example. The shepherd prince of Troy, Paris, is asked to choose between goddess Hera, queen of Olympus, Athena, goddess of wisdom, and Aphrodite, goddess of love. His enforced selection being over who between them is the most beautiful. He has an apple and may choose only one of the three goddesses, to whom he must then give the apple. Each offers tempts him with something to influence his choice. But, being young, he makes the perhaps obvious choice in that the goddess of love had tempted him with the most beautiful mortal woman in all of the world, Helen. In making this choice for the possession of love and beauty, he immediately and inevitably makes an enemy out of power, Hera, and wisdom, Athena. Thus is his destruction, and that of his people, assured in the coming Trojan War. Had Paris chosen power over wisdom and beauty, then he would never have known Helen, and he would not have had the wisdom to know how to use his power, so leading once again to his destruction. Had he chosen wisdom, then he would have led an otherwise powerless existence, something unthinkable to a prince whose life was shaped by power, and he'd never have known the love of the most beautiful woman in the world. Truly is the judgment of Paris an allegory of the anima and how a man can never truly master it. In Lilith, the last temptation of Adam, the choice is between goddess Lilith and the second woman, Eve. The consequences of Adam's choice are far more critical and long-lasting than that of Paris, for it determines the future fate of the entire world. But unlike Paris, Adam gets a second chance. The anima appears in many other of her aspects within the novel. Her, because as with the animus, she is most commonly experienced in relationship to real outer people, albeit that that relationship may be distorted either by what is projected into it from within the man's psyche, or by what is assimilated from it, that is, taken into the subconscious imago of the anima from the man's outer real relationship to a woman. Male creative artists of all kinds have always used the anima as the image of their muse or femme inspirache, for example, the pre-Raphaelite artists with their favourite models, or even this current author, Stephen T. Richards, with his own creative muse. Ranging from the elderly 17th century midwife, Mistress Penny, through the young 16-year-old beauty Lizzie O'Reilly, then the mothering yet bullying and marmishly glamorous Dr. Claudia Moore, to the still stunningly attractive older woman, Claire Latimer, the collective male experience of woman is summed up in the story of Lilith as the various men in the novel adjust themselves to the many faces of Eve. 
This becomes quite literal in the final showdown between Lilith and the Daughter of Eve, and this leads us into the last essential thread of Jungian psychology in the story, the hero cycle. Heroes and heroines, personal transformation through the myth of Lilith, the last temptation of Adam. The most common form of myth in all cultures is that which Carl Gustav Jung and the mythologist Joseph Campbell refer to as the hero cycle. Intended as an exemplary story, the classic structure of the hero cycle involves a miraculous birth, the rapid rise to prominence, hubris or inflation, betrayal, downfall and death, and then finally, rebirth. The hero cycle is particularly well adapted as a form of cultural transmission to prepare adolescents for their psychological journey to maturity and to help them to survive. A sense of specialness, egoism and self-importance often characterizes youth and this can lead to a dangerous hubris and then just as frequently to a self-betrayal and downfall. The death is meant in a healing way to be symbolic, not literal as in the death of the immature youthful personality and a rebirth into a wiser adulthood. It is a rite of passage from self-centeredness to the psychological realities of the wider world. In the novel Lilith, The Last Temptation of Adam, we meet with one such psychological reality. The simple truth that the hero myth is not in fact something characteristic only of adolescent life transition. It is instead a universal cycle that repeats aspects of itself for as long as we as individuals continue to develop. And paradoxically, most of all, when we stop developing. For with each new and profound life challenge we encounter, we are confronted afresh with the spectre of our personal limitations and have to find from within ourselves the strength of character and maturity to overcome them. The three principal young men in the story, Adam Teal, Sean O'Reilly and Adam Mitchell, are all in the proper age range for a classic hero cycle story and their travails are worked through accordingly. The older men are challenged too. Kevin O'Reilly Jr., the police superintendent husband of Claire Latimer and Dr. John Sutton, each having to face aspects of their remaining quote-unquote unfinished business. Yet this is most clearly seen in the case of the oldest of the men, Dr. Kevin O'Reilly, who for decades had undergone a personal odyssey of self-development, and to all outward appearances is a finished product, an individuated human being, and an exemplar in his character. However, the encounter with Lilith exposes that last shadowed recess in his soul, and it's only when in the depths of his ultimate despair, when he cries out for death to release him from his failure to live up to himself, that he at last takes the final step, the one that had yet to be taken. The fact that he did suffer an unendurable angst and sense of inadequacy in the face of the ultimate challenge, and yet he did face up to himself and do what had to be done, satisfies the, quote, little death and rebirth, end quote, required in the hero cycle. But the hero cycle is not the exclusive opus of men. Claire Latimer's soul is thrown open to the wind, and like O'Reilly Senior, she faces the destruction of her previous sense of self, her identity, and her own imminent death and through this is exposed to her every unresolved personal flaw. As surely then as Adam Mitchell stretches back in the continuity of his soul through Adam Teal to that first Adam in Eden, then so too does Claire Latimer pass back through Sarah Tennyson to that first mother of the world, Eve. Claire, in early middle age, and O'Reilly as he is approaching old age, both go through the hero cycle as surely as any youth on the cusp of adulthood. 
With Lilith herself, we find that even goddesses must go through the hero cycle. For in her final scene with Adam, she at last becomes human, and in so doing accepts the self-transcending responsibilities of true love and of non-possessive attachment. She could have destroyed him, but instead chose oblivion with him. Was it perhaps that in that defining human moment, she was in traps for a second time? Or maybe it really was her liberation, her final escape from the beguilement of the world through the medium not of blood-red physical soil, but of love. Yet for Lilith, the personal transformation she at last seems to achieve is, in the end, forestalled. For the animus, in the shape of the implacable Maximilian von Hesse, ensures her rebirth away from eternal peace with her Adam. So, for Lilith, the cycle must start again, until perhaps she is finally reconciled with her dark servant. But what then, finally, of the three Adams? On screen is a picture of Freya Lund as Lilith, representing the platonic form, the image of the woman inside every man's soul. We encounter him in Eden as the first man, fully formed as an adult. He nevertheless has the consciousness of a child. He's aware of his specialness, he is the original human being, and of his special relationship to his father, the Lord Creator. He is aware too of his incompleteness, his loneliness, and his instinctive desire for a companion, a woman. But his development is insufficient to even consider this as an equal relationship. Woman must be subservient to him. He is, after all, made in the Creator's own image. Adam's hubris, or his inflation, is therefore already in place. His true fall comes with Lilith's temptation, because he is given the opportunity to increase his level of development for a relationship with her, but instead he opts for an inferior copy of the Divine Feminine, in the form of the all-too-human Eve. The subsequent temptation, that of the forbidden fruit, is but a consequence of this, his true first fall. His death is his human mortality, and his karmic rebirth is in the form of Adam Teal and then Adam Mitchell, with both sharing some of the naivety of that original Adam in Eden. When, as Adam Mitchell, he is presented with the last temptation of Adam, he is given the opportunity to redeem both himself, his former selves, and indeed all of humankind, at least from the perspective of his temptress in Eden, Goddess Lilith. His response is the true culmination of the hero cycle, as out of a selfless love, for two women and for the world, he makes the ultimate sacrifice. Firstly, to consciously let go of all earthly temptations of power and beauty, and of the promise of eternal life as the consort of a goddess. Then, to willingly end his own life, and thereby oblige his first and truest love to sacrifice herself for his love of humankind. On screen is a picture of Freya Lund as Lilith and Matt Milburn as Von Hess. The anima and the animus, their through line is the self-realization of the genome, the logos of life. By Lilith's acceptance of her own self-sacrifice, he had in effect assimilated her within himself. The completeness so yearned for by Adam in Eden was achieved through the final alchemy of animus and anima. Thus his rebirth is paradoxically contained in his self-sacrifice and death. As for howsoever brief a moment he had completed himself. There was nothing further left for him to do or to achieve. His life had accomplished its ultimate purpose and meaning. Adam and Lilith were reconciled. 
Adam's redemption was then on behalf of us all, including the mythic shepherd prince too. For of the three choices given to Paris, wisdom was in the end the best option. But he was still only a youth, and he had yet to learn the lesson of the last temptation of Adam. Steve, Pauline and I would like to show you some behind-the-scenes photos from Pacific Road Studios. That is Steve and Pauline's movie studio. So the first picture on screen is our very own Pauline with Freya Lund. Freya Lund is doing a script reading for Lilith, and we can see underneath them there the original front cover for the Lilith novel. Here's Tom Stevens, or as we know him, Steve Richards, at Netflix producer Cyreal Entertainment in Berlin, with the CEO of Cyreal and a partner at Pacific Road Studios, Siggy Camel. Once again, here's Steve at games company Crytek, at their Frankfurt office discussing a partnership with Pacific Road Studios and representatives of the UK government. Most of you guys, if you come from the boyosphere, may indeed recognise that interesting statue or robotic man who's on screen being the main character from the very famous Crisis series of video games. Here's a picture of Steve in Tom Stevens mode with the backdrop that you guys are familiar with from the Young to Live By videos. And beneath, you can see the front covers to many of the scripts that are currently in pre-production at Pacific Road Studios. Pacific Road Studios currently has 23 films in pre-production, 21 of which were written by Steve and Pauline, and two of which come from overseas partners. This is the late Rutger Hauer of Blade Runner fame, who was cast as father or Saint Declan in Tom Stevens' Pacific Road Studios movie project, Victrix the Valiant of Albion. Pauline, of course, created this artwork. This, if you like, is a montage of many scenes from the Victrix trilogy, written by Tom Stevens. You can see Rutger Hauer there at the bottom, the artwork created by Pauline, and the rest were created by the very talented Steve Simmons. Thank you everyone for watching today's video, sincerely, and we really hope that you enjoyed and gained some insight from it, and indeed that you get the same from the Personal Myth Guide, which is dropping once again in two days' time from the release of this video. Steve has worked incredibly hard on it, and we know that it's everything and more that you guys anticipated, and indeed need or want for your personal development journey, or in Jungian fashion, individuation. The Personal Myth Ultimate Handbook is now available for pre-order. For anyone who has a yearning deep in their very genome to become who they truly feel they should be, this guide is utterly indispensable. Pick up your copy today and make 2021 the year you truly begin to become yourself.